Welcome to Governance House. This is Backgammon, our in-house podcast touching on the latest updates from the Middle East. Welcome to Backgammon. My name is Radi Sari, and with me in our DC office is my colleague, Dr. John Hald McCowan. Today is the 9th of May, which also corresponds to Victory Day in Russia, though far from it are the exploits of Moscow in Ukraine at the moment, where victory is elusive. And the Russian invasions continues to drag, causing immense human suffering, with casualties on both sides and severe disruption to global food safety and market stability. The conflict in Ukraine continues to overshadow developments in the Middle East. But unfortunately, those are not mutually exclusive, and we will try to discuss those developments in depth today. Though I would wish to highlight the work our colleagues Wilson and Kimberly are doing in covering the conflict in Ukraine, albeit in other capacities, and I'm surely looking forward to hearing their thoughts on what they are witnessing there in future episodes. That's a great introduction, Gadi. I think it centers our thinking and why this war in Ukraine that continues to drag on into its third month still matters to the Middle East. I mean, I can imagine that even if Russia's victory in Ukraine has been very elusive and their gains have been very supplemental, I would say at best, uh, they can still provide very disruptive behavior for their partners in the Middle East. We can consider what role they could play in trying to further deadlock and potentially raw nuclear deal coming to the table. Also, the situation in Idlib and Syria, they could easily encourage the Assad regime to have a new renewed offensive there, put more pressure on Turkey with risks of more refugees going across the border. And so when I think about this conflict in Ukraine that's ongoing, I'm thinking, what are the extra regional implications of Russia's power projection in the Middle East and how supposed partners or sponsors or hedgers of the United States and the rest of our partners in the world, how are they going to respond to crises and diplomatic events that occur in the future? Well, this is where it's important to also look at the, what the Russian uh, government is telling their people about the war in Ukraine, and then question how long it would be before they would pass that message back to their allies. So already we know that the Russian leadership has told to its people that this is a war with NATO, this is a war with the US, right. that this is a war that's funded by by the U.S. government, directed by the U.S. government. And of course, with Dr. Jill Biden's visit to Ukraine, this is only like flaring up that narrative in, in, in there. And I feel that it will be only a matter of time before that message is, is passed back to its allies, many of whom are already staunch uh, opponents to the United States, example, Iran. And this might also lead to further delays on the GCPOA being resigned. And I think those are the kind of dynamics that are currently playing out in the region. But from what we talked about last time, there are other dynamics, such as the Israeli and Turkish uh, mm -hmm. uh, relationship. Uh, I think that that was something that you sort of uh, alluded to, to Turkey's role in containing the uh, Israeli-Palestinian flare-up. And I think so far, with no missiles fired, uh, despite lone wolves attacks, I think that was kind of uh, spot on. I mean, I'm glad that we were able to touch on this back then, and it's something we're still monitoring now. I think you're referring to the no missiles coming from Gaza in retaliation for Israelis killing these um, perpetrators of these terrorist attacks and whatnot. And I think that's a stabilizing role that Ankara is playing in order to try to dampen down any insecurity 
that could be projected out from Gaza. But I think that's something else we talked about was the instability of the Israeli government, that you have this divided parliamentary ruling coalition that let's say the Israelis are going to respond to this renewed, this axe, axe attack that happened to Iliad, for instance. If they respond more aggressively, you can imagine that you have the Ram uh, Arab Israelis party that's a part of this ruling coalition of precious 60 members and 120 member Knesset. If they believe that the Israeli government is too aggressive in responding to these attacks, then they may defect to the opposition. And then you may have a vote of no confidence and the coalition can be broken up amidst this time where you have Israel warming its relationships with Turkey and many countries, of course, in the Middle East more broadly. So in a way, Israel is benefiting from an international support at the moment and suffering from internal strife. And I think that this just underscores the fact that while the crisis in has happened in Ukraine and much of the world is focused on it. It's not like the Middle East is standing still. In fact, there are these geopolitical rebalancing that's occurring on a week by week basis. And I'm glad we can touch on it uh, for these governance house podcasts to try to assess what are the broader strategic landscape is that explain these shifts in political positions while you have a war in Ukraine that's engulfing much of the world's attention. So let's break it down then. If we look at northern Iraq, northern Iraq right. and Turkey, I think that was one region that flared up in the last couple of weeks. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Right. So last podcast, we mentioned that there seems to be growing receptiveness on the U.S. administration to give F-16s or refit them to the Turkish government because they believe that Turkey is being beneficial in the fight for Ukraine and that they've they're advancing enough U.S. interests to continue the security partnership within the NATO alliance. Well, if you're saying that, then the question is, okay, Turkey, since April 18th, has launched an operation against the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, a U.S.-designated terrorist organization, as well as in Turkey and the EU more broadly, with this Operation Claw Lock, where Turkey is trying to use F-16s and drones to prevent PKK militants in northern Iraq from being able to cross the borders into Syria and to Turkey and potentially harm their interests. And so I think that this is something that makes one question how much are th that behavior productive in the U.S. interest and stability above all else, it seems, in northern Iraq and northern Syria while it's focused on the war in Ukraine. I feel always the U.S. has always turned a blind eye towards Turkey's PKK efforts in a way. So despite the pressure on Turkey in Syria vis-a-vis -vis the SDF, operations against the PKK have slightly gone less reprimanded by, by the U.S. foreign policy. And for good reason. I mean, we worked hand in glove with the SDF to fight against ISIS in Syria and to great effect. But the PKK, and I would love to hear more of your views on this, but the PKK is one, an organization the United States explicitly does not work with and we have no operational relationship with because of this terrorist designation, even if there are debated links uh, of affiliate groups like such as the YPG, which constitute a cross-ethnic SDF fighting force, the same democratic forces that we worked with in Syria. And so these issues are linked, but not necessarily uh, subsumed into one another. And so Turkey is trying to, on the one hand, support uh, the United States efforts to an extent in Ukraine, yet they're also targeting their principal separatist threat in their view, which is the PKK movement that's based in northern Iraq. And they're trying to convince the United States that this is uh, very much in their interest as well for the security so this of the is, country. Yeah, this has always been a point of contention in, in Turkish politics, but also in regional politics. The, the topic of Kurds 
in particular in Turkey has a different dimension that it does in other countries. While in other countries, the Kurdish minority or nationalist sentiment has always been crushed. In Turkey, the policy was always to crush it not only in Turkey, but in neighboring countries as well. I think this is where Turkey right. is different than other countries. Right. So you got the SDF in Syria, you got the YBS in, in, in Iraq at the moment. And those are definitely not, in my opinion, the PKK, despite the links that exist in them believing in the same ideology. And I'm happy to discuss that. Right. So then the question I would ask you, and we haven't mentioned this yet, but another source of instability in Iraq is over Sinjar. And this is an area I remember you covering as, as a journalist there in 2014 when you had the potential genocide of the Yazidis that occurred there. In fact, of course, many thousands did lose their lives and women were enslaved by ISIS subsequently. Um, and this is a site of continued contention uh, to the present day. But there's been a recent government offensive where the Iraqi government has tried to reassert federal control over this contentious border area from the YBS group that the Turkish government, for instance, would say is synonymous with the PKK. They're not a Yazidi defense force that's uh, organic to the locals there. In fact, they're a PKK satellite. How would you respond to Turkey's characterization of the YBS and why that could matter when we considered this tug of war right now that's occurring between the YBS and their allies and the Iraqi federal forces for control of this strategic area. I think this is an excellent point. And I think, you know, you've, you've covered this a lot in your, in your PhD as well. And I think the matter remains that the, 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 since the genocide in Sinjar in 2014, committed by ISIS against the Yazidi community, and the scenes of, at the time, Vian Dakhil, the, the Iraqi representative who, who was screaming in parliament, you know, my people are being butchered, to silence from fellow lawmakers in Iraq at the time, the people of that region felt defenseless. And I think at the time, it was the PKK that defended not only uh, uh, Sinjar, but also Makmur camp uh, mm -hmm. in northern Iraq, which was... Uh, is classified as a refugee camp, but has a lot of the families of, of PKK fighters living in it. And that was done in conjunction with the Peshmerga, the, the Iraqi Kurdish uh, defense forces. And at the time, that was allowed. However, once that, that, that war was over, that the war of, against ISIS was over, it became problematic why the YBS was created. And this was a self-defense force a concept believed in by the PKK, the self-defense. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where it's easy for Turkey to cast this, this big shadow over everybody as, as one big umbrella, one big PKK group uh, over all these different groups. However, I think the organic element remains that this is a group that particularly concerns Sinjar area. And I believe that the Iraqi constitution would have other means of, of dealing with such uh, uh, elements than necessarily a, a military operation launched by air by, the, by Turkey. Well, if you're the Iraqi Kurds in Erbil or Slimani, you would say, well, if the Iraqi government is so well disposed to have constitutional solutions to these problems. Why have we not split these disputed areas in Kirkuk between the Iraqi federal government in northern Iraq, uh, Kurdish-dominated, uh, versus the federal government in Baghdad. And so I think that much of Iraq, sadly, has been dictated by the terms of force of who controls over certain areas. And so I know the Iraqi government is in turmoil of who's going to be the ruling party. And you have folks like the popular mobilization units that are largely backed by Iran that have traditionally supported the YBS. I think there are shared interests there. 
not having Sinjar under Iraqi federal control. By having Sinjar, the strategic point, you're able to, f- to ferry arms and supplies and whatnot from uh, Iranian-influenced parts of Iraq to their proxies in Syria as a conduit point. Simultaneously, if you're referring to the PKK or the YPG or however one would define it, having controlling Sinjar allows their sort of base of support in northern Iraq to also transfer materiel and support to their affiliates in Syria. And that's something the Iraqi government, for whatever reason right now, is trying to disrupt very seriously. And there's been talk that there's going to be a 200 kilometer long border wall from Fishhabur in the Turkey-Iraq-Syria border all the way down to south- southwestern Sinjar in order to try to prevent cross-border movement. And so I think that this is just emblematic of the fact that for whatever reason, the governments in Baghdad, the powers that be, are trying to jockey for position in this critical northwestern part of the country. And I think the implications span the capitals of Tehran, Baghdad, and Damascus trying to think that, through that, how they're going to get a positive point. I would even say as far as Tel Aviv as well, because mm-hmm. this is this ties back to the Iranian nuclear deal. This ties back into the GCPOA negotiation at the moment, which is halted by the Russian conflict uh, in Ukraine. So this is where if we haven't taken that example of the flare up in northern Iraq, you can then tie it back to what's going on in Ukraine by seeing that it is actually of regional dynamic that involves Ankara, Tehran, and Tel Aviv, waiting to see how the the GCPOA plays out, and understanding that that is being put on hold while the Russians figure out their role in lifting sanctions on Iran, or perhaps encouraging Iran to continue with its nuclear weapon development, if that suits the Russian leadership interests. That's an interesting thought. I mean, it just underscores the point that many of these events are running concurrently to each other. And there's a lot of exchange interaction between them and linkage that we're trying to better understand for our clients. And my argument that since they have been going on for the last four decades, then the recent flare-up can only be explained by the regional dynamics rather than something that has changed in the field. And I think that would have been my approach to answering what, is the cause of the recent flare-up, I would have said it's the regional or geopolitical changes that are dictating changes on the ground. And perhaps we are faster in a race towards different arenas. Maybe we have already getting into a Cold War scenario where, where different areas are being divided into different regional and global superpowers. I know you have different views about Russia's uh, global position at the moment. But I believe that Russia will not shy away from trying to garner support in the region, in the Middle East, for its so far failed operation in Ukraine. So you're right, we may have some differences on the macro views of what the war in Ukraine, how it's being conducted and what are the effects for Russia. But I am in complete agreement with you about that partners in the Middle East or adversaries of Russia, the United States are looking at it very closely. I mean, if one was to take one perspective, Uh, We talked about this in previous weeks. Russia is one of the largest exporters of arms in the world. And many Middle Eastern countries, such as Egypt or the UAE, buys their weapons in abundance. And if you're looking at Russia's poor military performance in every measure, in my view, uh, with 15,000 deaths, let's just say, not including captured or wounded Russian soldiers, how are you going to get confidence that the weapons you're using are going to protect your soldiers in a let's say, a similar conflict in the future, as well as, pardon me, as poorly as they protected the Russians. The other side of the equation is that the Ukrainians themselves, they're using a lot of Soviet equipment, sure, for sure, instance, sure. and with better effect. And so perhaps the question is, well, 
if the weapons, maybe it's a net positive or uh, sort of a neutral type of acquisition if you're trying to buy weapons from them. Maybe you, you just distrust the fact that the Russians can give you military training of command and control and logistics and all these other issues that have been apparent in Ukraine that Russian military advisors aren't the ones you want to figure out how to also defenders often have a tactical advantage because you know you're defending true. your family, you're defending your, your your country, whereas with 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 the offensive forces, you're fighting in a land that's not yours that you're you don't feel the right to be there to start with. So it's it 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 is different in that sense. But I agree on that point, and I think this is why uh, we're looking at a, a at a tectonic shift again in the Middle East arising from the from the Ukrainian conflict that is growing every day despite the efforts uh, or, or despite the, the the narrative in the in the West that this is a unified front against Russia. I do believe that there are cracks in that unified front. India is is leading by example. They're they're benefiting from cheaper oil uh, discounted because of the war and they're they're getting away with it. They're not being punished for it and I think that is giving a lot of leeway to other countries to, to escape the uh, unison of, of agreement with the U.S. on this. And I think that's something we, we need to address. And I wonder whether that is the next uh, uh, surprise that we're going to be seeing is that how deep does the Russian influence go in the Middle East? Right. Well, I think we're this is the perfect case study <laughs> to see as the months go by and hopefully not years, but as this conflict wears on, it's one thing to have Russia support you when they're considered a counter-revolutionary force supporting the Syrian government, or they're providing mercenary groups to help you advance your objectives in Libya if you're General Haftar's um, militia trying to take the government in Tripoli. Um, these are these are more limited aims. Versus- I mean, or even the Wagner Group, you know, taking contracts in Mali to defend the government away from French. Uh, uh- legitimate forces which right. brings me back to our next issue is you know speaking of the the, the the russians filling the void that the french are leaving this is something we're seeing in the middle east right now where where the lebanese elections are 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 happening next week they already started with the lebanese voting in different embassies around the world this weekend next week will be will be the the vote in country and we know that this is an anticipated election. The country we've all heard about the trouble Lebanon was going through, the garbage crisis, the uh, inflation, the hyperinflation that took place. The horrible. And I think this is where um, I might differ with some people. I do believe, you know, the right to vote is important, but I don't believe that this election will make a difference. And I believe that is largely because of these macro reasons. I think Lebanon, just like Iraq, will have to wait for the result of the GCPOA negotiations before a government is formed, regardless of the result of the elections. But one thing that is important to highlight is that the Lebanese uh, constitution is taken from the French constitution. This is back to the history of the country formed by the French in 1920. And a lot of the dynamics that take place are reminiscent of French politics and are dictated by French politics themselves. And with French withdrawal, whether from Africa or from the Middle East, due to internal uh, pressures, I mean, forty-one percent mm-hmm. Marine Le Pen and and, and fifty something for uh, for and Macron, that was yeah. pretty pretty close. And I think that is putting pressure on France to follow suit with the U.S. isolationism and also withdraw from the region. And this is where I wonder whether the elections that took place in Lebanon or is going to take place in Lebanon. It's not going to be about who's showing up to vote, but 
but more about who's going to accept to pay the country's debts. This is right. a country that is under sanctions now, mostly because of the role that Hezbollah has been playing in its uh, global terror campaign against the U.S. and against its allies. I think Iran has played a big role in destabilizing the country. So uh, And so has Turkey. So has, again, Israel. So back to the same dynamic that we saw in Iraq. You sure. Have, you know, the three capitals, the three regional capitals in, you know, uh, interesting that Saudi Arabia is a big contender in Lebanon. Right. So in a lot of ways, the absence of global interest in smaller regions is leading to, to regional uh, flare up. And I think the Russians are one of the few global actors that are still interested in exploiting these differences and could play a big damaging role in, in the region in the next month. We talk about these macro themes in these podcasts. And I think they're very important. One thing I wanted to get your take on is that you have these rallies to support Tunisia's president, Kais Saeed, I'm sure organized by him and uh, perhaps more organically as well in Tunisia. Uh, this is the president who in July of 2021 sacked the government, suspended parliament before he began ruling by decree effectively. And I mention this because when the Arab Spring, I know I got my start thinking about the Middle East when the Arab Spring kicked off in Tunisia in December 2010. And since then, the legacy of the Arab Spring has been incredibly mixed and unfortunately very disappointing, I think, for many people in the Middle East and the broader world. But Tunisia was considered a partial exception. After Ben Ali was deposed, they established that was a success story. That was a success story. They established this fragile democracy that they hoped in time might be able to deliver the economic goods and provide the benefits of political liberalization. And even if Syria and, Ye and Yemen and Libya are going to hell in a handbasket, tragically, because of many of the disruptions of the Arab Spring and the consequent backlashes from ruling authorities, etc., Tunisia, at least, it seemed like this was a country that had a potential for a more prosperous, more stable, more democratic future. And so as we a year on from sacking the government, suspending parliament and Tunisia's president, sort of maintaining a power. I guess I'm curious how you think of the legacy of the Arab Spring based off of this event. Yeah, I don't I don't see the Arab Spring uh, dynamics being out here as much as I see, like I said earlier about Lebanon, the French heritage on the on the nation. How so? You have to bear in mind that Tunisia is modeled just like Lebanon along French constitutional uh, uh, understanding and as such being a form of mandate. And as such, these countries have the mechanisms that were put in, in order by the French constitutional system about the suspension of parliament and other things, where I might agree with you, it's less democratic, but more republican in a way, in the sense. So it is the, 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 the values of the republic that would allow a silent majority to believe that this is the system cleaning, cleansing itself up. And I think this is, this is an inner cleanse by, by the president who is uh, a one institution rather than one person. And I agree this has much room for constitutional abuse. Right. And this is why this conflict is being monitored, you know, constantly by different stakeholders. But I think the reason why he's been given this leeway is because the system worked that way in, under mm. the French regime. How much, I was going to say, how much do you think it's indication of the fact that when the Tunisian government was led by the Anatta party, for instance, and the Muslim Brotherhood um, inspired one that they just couldn't deliver the economic and, and social goods that ordinary Tunisians really needed. And that perhaps they had been more successful in this, 
some grab for power, which is how I might characterize yeah, that, this that, that was equally true in Egypt, right? This is what we saw with Mercy. We saw the Kuwisisi. And likewise, in, in right now, we're see, we are seeing a, a, a withdrawal of the, of the transnational movement of the Muslim Brotherhood, mostly because, like you said, it did not bring change economically to people. Right. Even if change brought some social change, which was not welcomed by everybody, at least welcomed by their supporters, but even their supporters could not welcome their economic policies because they were damaging for everybody, or at least the region did not prosper. So I feel the withdrawal of the Muslim Brotherhood which could also be blamed on Turkish economic performance because we know Turkey and the AKP party in Turkey is one of the main uh, backers of the of the global Absolutely. Movement. So I feel that that withdrawal will definitely play a part. Like I said, I think uh, you also had French uh, Turkish rivalry that uh, was not there in 2011 when when the when the revolution happened in Tunisia. So there was agreement there. Ben Ali was axed in a moment of international agreement. But as differences grew between Macron and Erdogan, President Macron of France and, and, and Erdogan of Turkey, I believe that that allowed for a, a space of maneuver for the Tunisian president, that he, he does understand that he has some sort of French republicanism backup that allows him to suspend elements of democracy in the country. Well, and, and we'll see what the implications of this are. I mean, I, I often say the strength or weakness of institutions. And if I felt more confidence in the fact of the parliament being able to sustain itself, even if it's dissolved or whatnot, I'm curious to see as time goes by how this infant democratic ideal uh, may take shape over the coming months and years. I'm just captivated by this story as one of the many uh, that the Arab Spring... No, and I, I, I agree with you. It is it is a source of alarm. Like emergency rule is emergency if it lasts for a short period of time. When you have emergency rule lasting for 40 years, you do understand that's dictatorship. That's right. Well, Russia has the luxury, if you're going to think from their perspective, of thinking in pure strategic terms, the apolitical, a-liberal ideas of who can they gain strategic leverage over in order to provide military and support for them. They're not asking about their record on human rights or democracy or freedom of speech. All these things that the United States, certainly in its rhetoric, if not and its actions as often as one might wish is um, sort of contingent upon their aid, one would think, um, in many of these circumstances. And so Russia's just seen, like China, I think abroad, they're not so concerned about your political system as long as you're a good investment mm -hmm. and they're able to, you're an out, you're a market for their goods, whatever they are. And so I think that it's, it's curious that many of these countries retain these ties with Russia, given, I think, the horrendous war that was initiated by Putin and his and his government. And so we're continuing to see how aid is valued for its apolitical, uh, don't ask questions provision versus the United States, which I think under the Biden administration is trying to make a renewed effort to make it more principled aid for countries that seem to advance objectives that are beyond just the realist tr strategic ones. So this is why it, it remains important, I think, to look at the macro at the moment in the Middle East. I don't think right now we can benefit much from too granular a view of any specific arena. I mean, we continue to monitor Iraq. We continue to monitor Lebanon. We, you know, Tunisia, Turkey, we course. talked about it earlier. Uh, right. off air. We we're talking about Tunisia and what's going on. The Gulf countries, uh, we touched upon that in previous podcast. All of these internal dynamics are important and they're, they continue to play out. However, the regional one, in my opinion, is the one that's casting the biggest shadow at the moment. And I think as we near uh, a June, I feel like there will be 
uh, questions to be answered about how long the negotiations can continue on the GCPOA, which will in their turn unlock a lot of uh, uh, dynamics in the region. Even when you look at Turkey's involvement against the PKK, that can only go as far as the other conflict not being fared up at the same time, because you can't have two wars in the same arena. That is almost, you know, it, it's too many armies in one space. So I feel like there's a competition over who wants to dominate the, the security space. Is it Turkish uh, operations right. the PKK or is it the PMUs attacking U.S. interests? That's what Iraq looks like today. And I, I think, think both. Both. They're, they're jockeying for position right now in real time in front of our very eyes, whether we're talking about Sinjar or the borders of northern Iraq and uh, southern Turkey. Uh, Can the U.S. do anything to, to counter that? Uh, at the moment, do you think? It's a good question. I think the United States' focus is orientated towards the war in Ukraine. I think in relation to the situation in northern Iraq, the Iraqi government would say that it's a violation of their sovereignty, that Turkey is uh, projecting this deep, let's say 30 kilometers is their aspiring amount of depth into Iraq in order to close out the border from PKK militants. I think because the United States doesn't have an operational relationship with the PKK base in Kandil, they have very little to do beyond sort of urge restraint and not have excess civilian lives be killed and whatnot. And so I think the leverage is is uh, less there than Sinjar is an interesting issue. I mean, it's an area that the United States policymakers are familiar with. Joe mm-hmm. Biden was, of course, vice president mm-hmm. when President Obama... He's the one who called it a genocide at the time. I mean, it's... Uh, right. And so I think that he has a moral view of the world. And I think that that means that those headlines are on his agenda more than they are in the um, the valleys and mountain ridges of northern Iraq and southern Turkey. And so I'm curious to see how the Biden administration has tried to repackage, of course, their continued support for the Iraqi government in certain ways. And how are they going to address the fact that there's a ongoing contests that could get increasingly bloody and perhaps lead so to do more. Do you feel the Ukraine is getting all the love or uh, do you think there will be still space for... I can imagine there's space, but understandably the United States is trying to avoid a nuclear confrontation in Ukraine and yet they're in defeat a very malign influence in Russia. But at the same time, I think you can walk and chew gum at the same time. And I believe that the Biden administration has hired some very capable officials that can keep an eye on what's going on in northern Iraq. And I hope that they do their jobs well. Now, I think I think there is a very good, uh, you know, understanding by U.S. civil servants on the ground of the situations. I do feel and I said that on our previous uh, podcast, I do feel there is a disconnect between that and Congress. So there, there, there is a a lack of um, capacity, I feel, to link the the granular view from the field with what's going on uh, uh, in Congress. However, that might be dictated by escalating events, whether it's Israel and a potential for for a flare-up between the Israelis and the Palestinians in the next month, or in northern Iraq, or in in, in Lebanon. So we will continue to follow that as well as other stories. Our buys are on the website, and for any more follow-up, please do use the form on our website, www.governancehouse.me. This was Backgammon. Backgammon.